Hello and welcome to a bonus Tuesday episode of Scottish Independence Podcasts. We were all taken a little bit by surprise, I think, by the First Minister's press conference yesterday, where she stood in front of the the massed press corps and allowed them to ask any questions they like. And they did, some odd ones about her rather unexciting tax returns, but there were some very topical ones in there as well. The audio on the original live stream was pretty ropey in that you couldn't hear most of the questions from the press, so we have fixed that for you in this podcast version. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for coming along today. Um, As I think has been indicated to you, uh, these general news conferences, which I Uh, intend to do periodically um, are not about me making a long speech to you, you'll be delighted to hear that, nor necessarily making any set announcement, although there may be occasions when we do that. But first and foremost, it's about giving you the opportunity to ask me questions on whatever might be of interest uh, to you. I think it's been suggested that you would find that helpful on occasion. Now, given that questions might range across a whole uh, plethora of topics, um, I should say there may be questions that I don't have the information to hand to answer here, in which case we can cover points of detail later on. Uh, Final word for me just on format. My intention today is to follow the same practice uh, I followed during the COVID briefings of offering a question to every journalist in the room. I think that seems to be the fairest way to proceed I recognise, though, one of the potential downsides of that is that it might limit time depending on how many of you are here for follow-up questions. So very happy to take views and feedback on the format after today, but that is uh, the format I intend to follow for this occasion. Uh, So I think with no further ado, for better or worse, I'm just going to hand over uh, to questions and go through the list of journalists uh, that has been given to me, starting with Lindsay Bewes from BBC Scotland. Thank you, Kristen. I just wanted to ask you if it's appropriate for SNP politicians to attend a trans rights rally where offensive signs are on display. Do they not have a responsibility to take greater care about being associated with such things, given the fraught nature of the gender reform debate? Uh, Thanks, Lindsay. I think all politicians um, have an obligation to contribute to debate that is civil and respectful and that's a responsibility I I take seriously and would expect uh, all members of my government and all uh, elected members of my party uh, to take seriously as well. Uh, That said, uh, and I've attended many demonstrations over my many years in politics now, And probably on all of them, uh, I've seen placards or or signs that would not align with my views on the topic of the demonstration. And, you know, certainly from the images I have seen, uh, that was the case uh, at the demonstration on trans rights uh, on Saturday. Um, The placards that I have seen in no way absolutely no way, shape or form uh, accord with my views um, and I would uh, condemn uh, the way in which those views uh, were expressed and the views uh, that were expressed there. Um, And I don't think it is fair or credible to suggest that uh, the elected representatives who were there in any way share or or condone 
those views. And I think if you want to be part of a, a demonstration where you are, whatever the subject matter is, you are expressing uh, views and standing up for causes that are important to you. If we take the view that if there are uh, individuals or minorities there who express things in a way that you would not agree with, then we, we sort of suggest that only those people can be part of demonstrations. Uh, the final point I would make is, um, you know, I've, I've seen images over the last couple of weeks uh, from, I think, uh, demonstrations against the Gender Recognition Reform Bill outside Parliament where there have been placards, signs that I've seen, certainly seen images of in social media um, about me that were, you know, offensive and, in my view, although I'm subjective about these things, perhaps, uh, that they were completely unacceptable. So, you know, I think we've all got a responsibility to express ourselves, particularly elected representatives, in ways we think are appropriate. And uh, I would certainly uh, say that that applies to me and to others in my party. Laura Alderman from STV. First Minister, we've been speaking to care homes across the central belt and in Fife who are telling us that it's impossible to recruit staff at the minute and as a mm. result they're paying for expensive agency staff. One home we spoke to is paying £7,000 a week just now for a nurse, just for one week. And they say that they'll be forced to close their doors if nothing's done on this. Do you agree that this is unsustainable and what's being done to fix the social care crisis in Scotland? So re recruitment, whether in social care, the NHS across public services and actually, to be frank, the economy generally is something that I am very concerned about. Um, in social care, we are working hard and obviously supporting health and care partnership colleagues to uh, help with recruitment. Uh, there has been, in fact, it was an issue uh, that I was answering questions on at FMQs last week. There you know, has been a, an increase in salary for adult social care workers. We want to go further, but there has been um, an increase already. Uh, we are across uh, social care, but in the health service uh, as well, investing in international recruitment campaigns. We have seen uh, an increase, particularly in the, the National Health Service, significant increases in staff in post over recent years. But the recruitment, and, and so there is much that is the responsibility of my government working with partners to uh, seek to address, and we are uh, doing that to the best of our ability. And I think paying conditions uh, are, are a part, big part of that. There is a wider challenge around recruitment um, at the moment across Scotland, public and private sector, and across the UK um, that has been exacerbated very, very significantly by Brexit, and that is something that, that concerns me. In fact, going back to issues uh, of, of social care, one of the issues I, I discussed, albeit relatively briefly, with the Prime Minister when I saw him in Inverness a couple of weeks ago, uh, was how easy or otherwise it was. Obviously, his view was, is that it was relatively easy. My view is that it is not as easy as it should be to recruit uh, social care staff under the social care visa uh, from other countries. And actually, I've just... Uh, signed off a letter to him because he invited me to send him views on you know, how it was harder than it should be and how it could be made easier, which I'm uh, just about to do. So yes, there are uh, things for my government to do, but there is a much bigger, wider issue around recruitment that I would again call on the UK government to address as a matter of urgency. Lewis Mickey from Bower. Thank you. Uh, our fourth news investigation has found that there are hundreds of Edinburgh council homes at the moment that are waiting for repairs on damp and mould. In fact, there's actually 
almost as many on the waiting list to begin 2023 as there were requiring work all of last year. And the council say that a lot of this comes down to rising energy costs. People can't afford to heat their homes. So what can the Scottish Government do to help with that ahead of uh, budget setting from councils next month? I'll come on to the budget settlement in, in a moment. Uh, obviously, it is the responsibility of, of councils or social landlords uh, or private landlords where that is appropriate to ensure that their housing stock is in uh, good condition and that repairs are carried out as appropriate. And there are obviously standards and, and regulations in place around that. There is also no doubt at all, uh, and I have a lot of sympathy for councils and uh, social landlords here about the impact of rising energy costs. Uh, so there is no doubt that that will be making uh, that challenge harder uh, for, in this case, Edinburgh City Council. Um, my job as First Minister within the resources we have available is to uh, ensure that we provide allocations to councils that are as fair as possible within uh, the, the financial constraints we operate within. Obviously, the budget uh, for this year is uh, for next year, uh, sorry, is not yet passed yet. It is going through the parliamentary process, but the, the draft budget has been published and includes a half billion pounds uplift to local councils for uh, next year. So that is further evidence that we are seeking to provide uh, maximum uh, resources within our overall uh, resources to local councils uh, as we can, recognising the significant pressures that are on councils and everybody else at this time. Gina Davidson from LBC. First Minister, yesterday um, you maybe inadvertently opened a conversation about age of consent and what age should be appropriate for different things, including drinking alcohol, you said those, the way you phrased that wasn't particularly what you meant, but I wondered if you do want to have a conversation about reducing the, the age of majority from 18 to, to 16 for any other uh, areas of our, our life. And can I also just pick up on the BBC's question about the, the demo? And I know you say there have been offensive signs about you at um, other uh, rallies that were against the gender recognition reform bill, but isn't there a difference between signs that are suggesting violence against women and signs that are, that are admittedly offensive? On the answer to your first question, no, um, is is the answer to that. On the second question, sorry, what I would, yeah, I mean, anything that suggests violence is is obviously completely beyond the pale and, and of a different order to uh, other offensive things, although I, I take the view that um, probably all offensive ways of expressing things should be avoided. Uh, just to be uh, clear, the, the reason I was referring to um, placards about me was not to draw necessarily an equivalence between those and placards at the demonstration on Saturday. It was to make the point that I don't assume when I see placards being offensive about me or other people on the other side of any debate to the one I am on, I don't assume that everybody at that demonstration uh, endorses or condones that. And, and that's the point I was trying to make, just as uh, I know that elected representatives from my party at the demonstration on Saturday would in no way condone uh, what was on the placards there. So that's the point I was seeking to make, uh, rather than necessarily get into a debate about the uh, the, the relative uh, sort of value or otherwise uh, of what is on uh, these particular signs. James Cook from BBC. First Minister, so my question is about, uh, see the Prime Minister has asked his independent ethics advisor to look into the tax affairs of the Conservative Party chairman Nadim Zahawi. Um, I'm interested in your views on that, but also specifically, I seem to recall the SNP saying that you were committed to publish your tax returns annually for the entire duration of your 
tenure as First Minister, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've had them routinely throughout that period. Um, I'll take that question first and then I'll come on to uh, the former Chancellor. Um, no, you haven't. I mean, you can judge this uh, in whichever way you want. I've perhaps had other things uh, to deal with over uh, recent years. And given that, and I appreciate this is relevant to what I'll come on to say, uh, you needn't necessarily take this on my word, but my salary as First Minister is my only income. So, you know, if any of you are getting excited about what you might see in my tax returns, I would caution you against it because there isn't anything in my tax returns other than my, you know, publicly known uh, salary. But that said, well, if you let me finish the, the question uh, or the answer to your question. Yes, I mean, we're coming up to the end of uh, this tax year. Um, and, you know, when we've passed the end of this tax year into February, I will publish uh, the tax return um, so that what I've just said there you can see uh, is absolutely the case. And I also recognise that while tax affairs are in the, the news. In fact, I would, uh, I think my recollection is correct here that when um, I previously published a, a tax return, I think it was when there were questions around David Cameron's tax affairs at the time. So um, when these things are in the news, I think it is, uh, and I'm going to come on to comment about Nadim Zawai's uh, own tax affairs, so it's, it's appropriate. So yes, when I get the administrative uh, sides of, side of that uh, sorted, I will, I will do that. Um, on uh, the former Chancellor, yeah, I'd note what the Prime Minister has said, which you know, seems to me to be more about kicking it into the long grass than uh, addressing it. I think his position, the former Chancellor's position, is untenable. Um, I think he should resign uh, his current position as chair of the Conservative Party. It seems to be the case, and uh, I'll be corrected if I'm wrong here, but I think this is now beyond any uh, real question that while he was Chancellor, he settled a, a seven-figure uh, tax bill with HMRC, which included a very significant penalty. Um, now, that means, as far as I can see, that there must have been something untoward about his tax affairs to a very large tune in terms of the amount of money involved. So I think somebody who is a government minister in that position, I just think their position is, is untenable. So I would uh, think he should uh, resign uh, his post, and if he doesn't do so, rather than kicking it into the long grass and uh, instructing the inquiry, as the Prime Minister has done this morning, I think the Prime Minister should remove him from office. Neil Purin from PA. Thanks, First Minister. On the GRR bill, can you confirm when the government will send a petition for a judicial review to the, uh, the Supreme Court at the Court of Session? And would you consider releasing the legal advice around that case? Um, I think you're well aware of what my answer will be on legal advice. Uh, the uh, rules and uh, conventions around legal advice are, are well established and they are uh, important at all times, but I think particularly when there is uh, going to be or likely to be a, a court case, it's important that governments can uh, rely on uh, legal advice that uh, is is confidential. Um, I, I'm not able to give you the date. Uh, as I understand it, there is uh, routinely when it is judicial review uh, that we are uh, talking about, there's a, a three-month period uh, in which a judicial review can be intimated. Obviously, we are you know, looking at all 
uh, angles around that and preparing uh, all that you would be expect us to be preparing and looking at all options. I mean, we're talking here about judicial review, but obviously we want to look at uh, all options that are available. Uh, the order, the Section 35 order, of course, is, is also currently subject to negative procedure. So there is a lying period in the House of Commons uh, for that. So the process around that is not yet completely uh, finished. But we will update you um, when appropriate about the, the timing of the steps that we will take. So what other options would those I, there, there may be none. I'm just, you would expect us to look. This is the use of a Section 35 order, as was being commented on extensively last week, is unprecedented. Um, there is no uh, precedent to look at in terms of how to challenge that. It's not laid down in the, the statute. So maybe there are no other options, but we are looking to see whether that is is possible. I should say, um, you know, there are two, in, in my view, there are two reasons for challenging this. They are related. One is, of course, to uh, allow the, the, the legislation scrutinised, consulted on and passed overwhelmingly overwhelmingly by the Scottish Parliament to be given royal assent and to uh, come into law. Secondly, though, even if you didn't think that was important, and I do think that is important, there is, I think, a real public interest now in getting uh, some interpretation, judicial interpretation of Section 35 and what are the circumstances in which it can be used, can't be used, what tests need to be passed, what evidence does the UK government need to put forward? Because at the moment, similar to the, the, the case law that we now have around the reserve devolved split where there are, are grey areas that we, we can look to case law to see what side of that a particular proposition uh, and proposed act of parliament might might follow and we don't have that with section 35 so right now as things stand as was demonstrated last week uh, this is a, a power that can be used pretty much on the whim of the UK government any time they have a political disagreement with the, the Scottish Government on a piece of legislation and they can find a spurious ground to invoke Section 35. That seems to be what uh, can happen. Um, the last point I would make is, you know, it, it was put to me last week, but it's only been used once in 25 years, so it will be used sparingly. Our experience suggests the opposite. So the, the UK Government breaching the Seoul Convention it didn't happen in the first 20 years of the existence of the, the Scottish Parliament. And our experience is as soon as it happened once, since then it has happened several times. So I, I think once uh, the UK government gets over that first time of using what was previously considered an unthinkable thing to do, our experience to date has been that they will do it more and more often. So I think there is a, a public interest in understanding more about the, uh, the limitations of that. Chris Green from the AI. Thanks, First Minister. Um, just following on from that, in fact, um, are there any specific bills and legislation that you're now looking at that you're planning over the next few years that you think could be subject to a Section 35? Or is that, as you're saying, so wide that you're, you're concerned about lots of other areas too? Um, I think the concern now is that it would be very difficult to really bring any uh, process to bear that would allow us to say with any confidence which bills were safe from that and which bills were, were vulnerable to it because I think it seems to be uh, so unfettered and completely at the whim of the Secretary of State that it would be very difficult to say with certainty that any bill should it 
should the, the UK government choose, wouldn't be vulnerable to that. And that's a completely unacceptable position uh, for a democratically elected parliament to be in. Um, you know, if, if I think back to, to legislation already passed, you know, you could probably come up with many examples, even trying to, to draw it quite narrowly. I mean, I think one that comes to my mind because it's a bill I took uh, through the Scottish Parliament in a, a previous government job, the, the minimum pricing for alcohol legislation. If that was being introduced now, particularly post the Internal Market Act, there's one that I think would be very, very likely to fall into to the scope of one that the UK government disagreeing with the policy of that may choose to... So it's a completely unacceptable position to have this blank sheet of paper power that the UK government can use to override the decisions in areas of devolved competence, uh, the decisions that the Scottish Parliament have taken. And remember, almost by definition, because Section 35 has been used, there's no question being raised that the Gender Recognition Reform Bill is within the competence of the Scottish Parliament. If, if the concerns had been about competence, then Section 33 would have been the, the route to use. The fact that it is Section 35 is almost an admission that this bill is within competence, which, of course, the UK government had previously conceded back in, I think, 2018, when they were also proposing uh, the, the kind of reforms that we have in Scotland now legislated for. Lucanio Manyanda, Financial Times. Uh, thank you, First Minister. You sort of basically answered my question already. <laughs> I, wonder, I suppose what I could ask, uh, Secretary Sona Robinson said she'd written to Secretary of State last week, so it'd be interesting to see whether you've had any response from them since then. And, I, I mean, and then I was going to ask whether you, the, the way that Section 35 is worded gives too much discretion to the Secretary of State and what can be done to re remedy that. I mean, is there any option like to, can, can we go back to Scotland Act and, and have that changed or what, what options are there to remove that? Um, on the first question, not that I'm aware of, um, I will double check and let you know if that has changed, but to uh, the best of, of my knowledge, there's been no response to Shona Robertson's uh, letter to the Secretary of State. Um, and, and secondly, you know, obviously the UK government would have to agree to amend the Scotland Act. I suspect there is not going to be a, a willingness to do that. Um, my view, I think with 25 years of experience of a Scottish Parliament now, I think to have that kind of power in uh, the Scotland Act is completely unacceptable. It is, as things stand, certainly without any case law that, that starts to limit the discretion, it is tantamount to pretty much unfettered discretion on the part of the, the UK government. And that is, it is a, an offence to the very notion of democracy, that we have a Scottish Parliament that within areas of its competence can consult on change, scrutinise change and overwhelmingly legislate to have that overturned or not much more than on the stroke of a, a pen uh, by the Secretary of State. I, I just think that is, is an affront to democracy and, and shouldn't stand. Mark McLaughlin from The Times. Uh, thanks, First Minister. Um, can I ask about the school strikes? Now, you gave councils £14 million to hire teachers and we don't have any more teachers this year. You're going to give them the same next year. Is there going to be any conditions attached to that to make sure they do spend that money on hiring teachers. We also learned last week that you offered to cut class contact time for primary schools and the councils and the unions refused. Now, bear in mind, the SNP chairs, COSLA, um, you control most of the councils. So why can't you bring some pressure to bear on at least the SNP councils 
to accept this phased introduction, bearing in mind they've accepted a phased introduction of free school meals. Um, you know, what pressure can you bring to bear to stop children losing out on their education? Uh, and on a completely different topic, what do you think Jacinda Ardern should do next, a job at NATO perhaps? And uh, will you be taking notes? I knew that the questions would uh, range far and wide today. I wasn't, in, and, and you know, I, I would have possibly thought the, the words Jacinda Ardern might have featured, but not in asking me uh, what I think she should do next. I think she's probably... Uh, in fact, I'm fairly certain she is more than capable of working out her next career move without any <laughs> advice uh, from me. Um, I think she is a, a politician and a, a leader. And uh, as uh, we, we stand here today, still the Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, she's someone of uh, very you know, high standing and stature, somebody that I think uh, attracts international admiration. So I, I'm pretty certain we'll we will not have heard the last of her, but what she will go on to do, I think, is a matter for, for her, uh, not not for me. Um, on your uh, substantive question, Mark, um, forgive me if I heard you wrong, I think you said we'd given £14 million to kids, so that's £145 uh, million pounds, uh, last year, which is being uh, rolled forward into to next year to support additional teachers. Now, councils are autonomous, and these issues around you know, funding flexibility, at one end of the, the spectrum through to ring fencing at the other and all the different iterations in between are often you know, sources of, uh, how would I describe this, intense discussion between uh, central and national, uh, central and local government. Um, and by and large, um, I respect the autonomy uh, of councils in terms of how they use the funding. But when we provide funding, as in this case, uh, to support additional teachers, which is uh, very important to our overall objective of raising attainment, uh, closing the attainment gap, making the changes around uh, contact time that you have referred to, I think it's fair to say I would expect that money to be used uh, for that purpose. So we're in the budget process right now, and these discussions will uh, be ongoing but if we're providing money for extra teachers I think whatever I expect I think parents and young people across the country would expect to see that money supporting extra teachers. Obviously the issue around the industrial action and uh, the, the pay negotiations are separate from that and we continue to uh, seek a fair uh, settlement to that dispute with the teaching profession. Just to clarify that point, you said rolled forward, so is that money not being spent? Is that a... No, 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 sorry, it, a similar amount is being made available in next year's budget, it's not the same money. We made £145 million available in this financial year and we will make another £145 million available in next year. Um, look, I'm not, obviously, councils uh, have a, a range of responsibilities if there's more information we can give you on the breakdown of that. But that was money provided to maintain uh, increases in teachers that we had seen during the pandemic and support at uh, the first phase. I mean, you talked about phasing. We have a manifesto commitment to additional teachers that inevitably will be phased over the, the lifetime of this parliament. So that funding was about supporting that. Alistair Grant from The Scotsman. Hi, thanks very much. Uh, just to confirm quickly on your tax returns, I think the original promise made by the SNP was for them to be published every year. Will you be publishing the previous years that we haven't seen as well as this year's tax return? And just on a completely different issue as well, um, I think you said last year that you were more open to the legalisation of assisted dying. Uh, we've run a piece today from the moderator of the Church of Scotland, kind of airing some of his concerns, including that assisted dying may come to be seen as a potential cost-saving measure given some of the pressures on the NHS 
I just wondered if, you, if your view has advanced at all since last year, uh, and if you, if you do have concerns, what those concerns might be. Thanks. Um, on the tax returns, I'll publish whatever you uh, think you need to uh, sort of verify what I'm saying today is that my salary is my income. So please don't be uh, getting all excited about what's going to be in my tax returns. Um, you are uh, going to be uh, disappointed in that. But I gave the commitment once I can do the administration around uh, all of that, I'll, I'll publish after the end of of this tax uh, year or uh, yeah, tax year, the one that runs January to January. Um, on the issue of, very important issue of assisted dying, um, my views are not yet finalised on the legislation. I, I think like many people, I, I suppose, find it a very difficult issue and find it one in which my views have changed. Now, in terms of the comments you report this morning, I, I don't believe it would ever be something that would be seen as a cost saving, but I do have a lot of sympathy because I think it is what has been behind my votes against in the past change of, of this nature, is that I have always been worried about and not previously been adequately assured in my own mind um, of uh, the the ability to have sufficient safeguards that even if only in a very small number of cases uh, would guard against potential abuse of a system like that. So that's always been uh, my difficulty. Like many people and, and many politicians, I've heard uh, from many people in, in recent years, uh, people at end of life with terminal illnesses, people who've had family members in that position uh, of the, the benefit at end of life uh, of a, a change like this, which has certainly had an influence on my views, and I will consider right up until we get to the point of voting in Parliament on this, I will consider very, very carefully all of these issues before I come to a final view, which I haven't uh, yet arrived at. Uh, Steve Braun from the National. This is my first minister. A um, couple of issues, that's okay. Um, Alistair Jack declined an invitation to the Scottish Parliament um, Equalities Committee this week, um, and then uh, Kemi Badenoch missed the deadline to respond to her invite. Um, I understand as of this morning that she still has not responded. I'm just wondering what you make of Alistair Jack's snub, uh, given he seemed so adamant that the bill needed to be blocked. Um, on a separate issue, um, we've commissioned a poll recently um, asking Scots whether um, Prince Andrew should lose his Earl of Inverness title. Uh, I'm just wondering uh, uh, what you make of that because 72% of people came back and said he should lose it. So I'm just wondering whether you agree with that um, and uh, you know what you make of that result. Um, on the latter one, look, I've got many, many responsibilities. That's not one of them. So that's not uh, a matter for me. And I'll, I'll leave that to, to others. Um, on the first question, look, I, I take the view that if you are going to outrageously and unacceptably ride roughshod over the democratically elected Scottish Parliament and seek to overturn uh, decisions that the democratically elected Scottish Parliament uh, has arrived at, you should at least have the guts to turn up and sit before a committee of the democratically elected Scottish Parliament and set out your reasons for doing so and answer questions on that. And the fact that uh, Alistair Jack and Kemi Badnock so far uh, have declined to do so, I think says quite a lot about the absence of confidence they have in their own position and how difficult they would clearly find it to answer questions uh, on that from MSPs. But I hope they will both uh, consider that and uh, change their minds if they've got confidence that they've done 
the right thing and done something that in any way, shape or form is democratically defensible, then what problem would they have sitting before a Scottish Parliament committee answering questions about it? Chris McCall from The Record. Thanks very much, First Minister. Um, Local authorities, it's kind of been discussed slightly today already, they face a grim financial outlook. We report today how Glasgow City Council could drastically scale back or even cut altogether its free meals programme during school holidays to help balance its budget. What to ask, should Scots now accept that local authorities will be unable to deliver as many public services in the future as they do currently? And also just um, on a slightly related note, um, Gordon Brown today warned the Conservatives are testing the water for a two-tier health system. They could see patients charged for some services. Now, that follows comments from former Health Secretary Sajid Javid. Obviously, the health, uh, health system in Scotland is devolved, but the, the future of it is very much up for debate. So what to get a reaction to those comments as well. Thanks. Thanks, um, Chris. On the first question, I'll come back to the point I made earlier on. It's for local councils to take decisions about their uh, budgets and... That is the, the autonomy and the, the democratic accountability that they have. I made this observation as an aside in Parliament last week that this is the time of year where we hear all sorts of uh, suggestions that councils are going to do all sorts of things that officers have put forward as proposals and most of them turn out never to be taken forward and I'm sure we'll be hearing lots of things right now that, that fall into that category. Um, secondly... You know, we are seeking to deliver the highest possible settlement for local government that we can within our overall resources. Uh, more than half a billion pounds will be the uplift in, in cash terms. There's also a, a real terms increase to local government in the next financial year if, if the budget is passed. Uh, and of course, we have proposed the use of our tax powers to maximise the revenue that we can use to support public services, the health service uh, in particular, but also local governments. So we're asking those who earn the most to pay a bit more in tax. So we are seeking to maximise the revenue we have available and therefore maximise the settlements that we can give to our key public services. Um, anybody who thinks or who wants to propose as other parties in the, the course of the, the budget process are free to do, that we should be giving more to, to local government, uh, have to also say where in the budget they think that money should come from, because we have constraints on the totality of the budget that we have available to us. Um, and that is the hard reality that we work within. Um, in terms of Gordon Brown, I I absolutely agree with Gordon Brown that uh, the Tories right now present a real uh, and present danger to the National Health Service. I think Sajid Javid's comments at the weekend were uh, appalling and alarming, although not entirely surprising. I also, and you know, I may be wrong about this and I'll stand to be corrected if the Tories want to, to do it, but I find it hard to believe that a former health secretary was flying a kite like that completely of his own accord and that there is that his comments don't give an indication that there is at the very least an active debate within the conservative party about moving down that road now as you say health has devolved in scotland but going back to our previous exchange about public spending it is the case that if England was to go down a, a privatisation or a, a charging for certain types of care, 
approach for the NHS in England, that would have a knock-on effect uh, in budgets in Scotland and Wales and, and Northern Ireland, because presumably part of the reason they're doing that is to reduce uh, public spending, to shift the balance between public and private uh, funding of, of the National Health Service. So if, if the public funding of the National Health Service in England either declines or doesn't rise as much as it, it would otherwise do, the Barnett formula means that there is a very, very real implication for Scotland. So that is why it is of huge concern, notwithstanding the devolved nature of the National Health Service. The final point I would make about Gordon Brown's uh, comments while agreeing with them is I well remember making this argument and raising this concern in the run-up to the independence referendum in 2014. And I also remember Gordon Brown calling it, um, I think I'm being polite here, I think he was probably more direct, called it baseless scaremongering. I think he even threatened to come back to frontline politics if we didn't withdraw this terrible smear. So, you know, Gordon Brown is right to be raising these concerns today. And I'm glad he's now seeing what we were warning about all these years ago, that the NHS is not safe in the hands of the Conservatives. Justin Bowie from The Courier. Thanks, First Minister. You'll be aware of the shocking incident of violence at Wade Academy in Fife recently. I was just wondering if you have watched that video at all and what your reaction was to it. And on top of that, um, the incident comes a couple of months after um, staff at Northfield Academy voted in favour of strike action due to concerns over people violence. And we also reported that in Tayside and Fife, there were up to 70 social media accounts kind of related to bullying and, you know, kind of yeah, bullying other people. So is this a concern that the government kind of needs to do more about as well, you know, bullying in schools and also sort of the bullying that then continues after class for some pupils? Um, so I have watched the video um, from Weed Academy and it is, you know, appalling and, and sickening to, to watch a really difficult watch for for anybody who views it. Um, I'm not going to say more about that particular incident right now because, you know, I, I, I think it would be inappropriate given the nature of it and it may be that there are, you know, investigations, inquiries uh, into that. In terms of the more general point, firstly, bullying violence is unacceptable, whether it's in a school after the school day when pupils are, are on their way home, or frankly, in, in any walk of life. And it's really important, I think, that we all in politics and in elected politics uh, unite to, to say that. I think in, I'm not intending in any way to sort of underplay the seriousness of these issues. I, I think one of the things that just strikes me that is very different now to when I was at school, and you know, it's certainly the case that when I was at school, bullying was a thing at times. Of course, now people can film these things on mobile phones, which was not possible to do uh, when I was at school. So th there's just that element I think we need to, to be aware of. But there is no doubt that bullying um, is a, a significant issue and a sig very significant concern. Um, local authorities obviously are responsible for, for schools. I, I think towards the tail end of last year, in response to a question at FMQs, said I would uh, seek to have a discussion with local authorities about what more the government can do to support them as they take on this challenge. And I know the Education Secretary's had some discussions with, with COSLA uh, representatives. So we'll continue to talk to local authorities about how we best support them to discharge their responsibilities. But bullying is 
it's horrible, it's unacceptable. Violence obviously it is, and I think everybody across the country wants to see as much as possible done uh, to combat and address the kind of incidents that your question started with. Simon Johnson from The Telegraph. Thank you, First Minister. Um, we may not have your legal advice on the gender reform row, but we do have the opinions of two Supreme Court judges. Um, and interestingly, they both make quite similar points. Um, firstly, uh, on the 13-page statement of reasons released by the UK government last week, uh, Lord Hope described it as devastating uh, for the bill, uh, Lord Sumption as powerful. Um, I think he raised specifically uh, the fair, fairly obvious problems about ha having two systems of gender reform uh, in different parts of the UK. Uh, and secondly, they, they also were fairly dismissive of the, of the argument this was an attack on devolution and, and the arguments you've made this morning with regards um, the Secretary of State just basically blocking any bill that he fancied. Um, I think Lord Sumption called it absurd and Lord Hope basically said that no other bill had created the UK-wide problems. Uh, that um, this bill has created since since devolution started. Um, so I'm just wondering. I mean, these are two very senior authoritative figures, and you know they're, they're making these these points, the same points. And doesn't that uh, undermine the, the claims that you're making? Uh, no, I don't think it does. I mean, they are entitled to the views. They are you're right to point out very eminent uh, legal figures and. Um, I would uh, not uh, presume to stand here and and. Uh, you know, suggest otherwise or, or to say that in, in some way their legal views are not valid and, and that they shouldn't be listened to. But we've seen a range of legal views, as will always be the case where there is an issue of controversy that may end up in the courts. You'll see a variety of legal opinion. You know, I could point to, you know, Charlie Faulkner, not a known supporter of the SNP, former Lord Chancellor under the, the last Labour government, who takes the opposite view uh, to that. And much of the legal commentary, um, and I appreciate I probably wasn't seeing all of it that I was seeing in the course of social media uh, last week, was actually commenting on how threadbare and thin uh, the UK government's position was. But you, you get that uh, variety and division of legal opinion ultimately only courts can decide. I, I think I mentioned uh, minimum pricing for alcohol earlier on. I well remember in the many years that it spent going through uh, one court after another, you know, I probably read over the course of it, you know, oodles, that's not a technical term, uh, you'll understand, but oodles of, of eminent legal opinion saying that there was no way the Scottish Government would prevail on minimum pricing for alcohol. Uh, and of course, we, we did. So, you know, courts are, are there uh, to adjudicate where there is a, a difference uh, of opinion on the, the legal point. The point I made earlier on, forgive me, I can't remember who I made this point to, um, but yeah, I have confidence in uh, the the position of the Scottish Government and I want to defend this legislation so that it can become law. But even if that wasn't the case, I, I do think there is a, a national public interest in having some you know, lines drawn that tell us what section what, what the, the limitations or are there none of section thirty five are. And you know, in terms of the interpretation of statute uh, that can only come from the courts. So I, I do think for the the future of the Scottish Parliament, the immediate future, but the longer term uh, future, um, until, of course, we, we become an independent parliament, and these things are all academic, something that I, I know is a, a matter that you uh, sort of are, are excited about, Simon. Um, but until that point, 
all Scottish Parliament, if things stay as they are right now, every piece of legislation that comes before the Scottish Parliament, there will be a doubt about whether a UK government could use Section 35. And I don't think that is in anybody's interest, not in the interest of the legislators in the Scottish Parliament, but it's not in the public interest either. So that is a, a related uh, but secondary reason why I think it is important that we don't simply let things lie where they are. Can I just ask that? I mean, there is an obvious issue here without having two different gender identities. Well, oh, sorry, I, I meant to come on to that, actually, because... One being legally male in one part of the I'm actually not sure that that is the case. There are processes where the UK government already recognises, uh, although there is talk now that they're going to revoke the recognition of gender recognition certificates from other countries, uh, granted under similar processes to those in the, the Scottish legislation. But I was, I was going to come on, so forgive me for uh, omitting to do this. The, the policy divergence here is actually not as a result of the Scottish government's position. If we cast our minds back to we 20... Well, uh, just let me finish the point here. Well, as we have the right to do, as what I'm about to say will demonstrate, but if we cast our minds back to 2018, when Theresa May was Prime Minister, and I accept that is, to use the technical term from earlier on, oodles of Prime Ministers ago, uh, but the UK government was proposing exactly the same thing as the Scottish government has now uh, legislated for, and in the, the consultation that they published then, and I'm, this is, won't perhaps be a, a, a precise quote, but it, this is an almost a verbatim quote from the UK government's consultation back then, where they said the issue of gender recognition is devolved to the Scottish Parliament. Scotland can have a separate system of gender recognition if it so chooses. So back then, there was no suggestion that this would be an insurmountable problem. That has come about because the UK government has changed its views, not because the Scottish government has changed its views. It has done, the, and the Scottish Parliament has done, what we set out back, I think, as far back as, as 2016. So, you know, I, I do think some of these arguments, when you, you scratch the surface of them, and some of them you don't even have to scratch the surface, really are not as strong as can be made out. Just ask, you mentioned independence and your parties looking at two options. Do you have a preference regarding the fact of Westminster or I, th I think I answered this question when I stood here last week. Uh, my view is the same as I set out in June last year to the Scottish Parliament. Uh, Lewis Mackenzie, the son. Thank you, uh, First Minister. Um, I just wanted to ask, you um, stepped into the um, council worker pay negotiations last year. Um, on the teacher strikes, would you um, also look to, to step in on those if those aren't resolved? And um, just to clarify just a point from um, earlier, um, you'd said that you, were, you would publish your tax returns at the end of this tax year. Does that mean this year or would you be looking to do that next year? Thank you. Um, at the end of this tax, the end of this tax year is the end of this month. So after that, so this year. This year, not next year. Yes. Yeah. And your first question. This is not about me or the government stepping in, or the government's involved in in these negotiations. The, there is a tripartite process for teacher pay negotiations uh, that includes teacher profession, Scottish government, and and COSLA. There were uh, discussions. I think as recently as Friday, um, around the, the settlement for this year. This is about seeking uh, enough common ground that allows a, a fair settlement to be arrived at within the constraints of affordability and fairness that the Scottish Government is, is operating within. We 
value teachers. I think that is evidenced by the you know, the 21% pay increase teachers have had since 2018, about the fact that teachers, um, by and large, are better paid in Scotland than they are in other parts of the UK. In fact, I think the OECD have said that teachers at certain grades are the best, amongst the best paid in Scotland uh, across Europe. So we highly value teachers. The offer that uh, has been made this year would give, in terms of percentage uplift, obviously teachers are paid at a higher level than other many other local government workers, but the percentage uplift would be the same as has been already offered to and accepted by school janitors, those who, uh, you know, work in uh, providing school meals to, to children. So we are trying to be fair within finite resources and we'll continue to uh, use all uh, best endeavours to reach a, a settlement. But it it's going to involve, as was the case with the local government dispute, as has been the case so far with this year's NHS uh, pay increase it is going to involve compromise and that's what we're seeking to find. Louise Wilson from Holyrood. Thanks First Minister. Um, most of my topics have already been covered so one very brief follow-up on the tax stuff. Um, are you confident all your ministers have paid their taxes properly? Um, yes uh, I am. Michael Blackley from the Daily Mail. Thank you First Minister. Um, last week it emerged that pupils in Aberdeen were being asked a survey which had a question about their gender identity. Um, pupils in this age seven to nine category were asked to confirm if they, they identified as male, female, transgender, non-binary or other. Um, do you believe it's appropriate that that question is being asked of pupils at that age group? And do you think that it should be being asked by schools across Scotland as part of the health and wealth, wellbeing study? Well, look, these are health and wellbeing studies. It is for councils to decide uh, what they consider uh, appropriate. The fact of the matter is there will be very, very small numbers uh, of children um, who question aspects of their own health and well-being and I don't think we should generally have a you know don't ask don't tell policy when we are seeking to make sure that children and young people have the access to support services that they they might need um, in the case of Aberdeen as, as I understand it um, this survey is because Aberdeen City Council withdrew from the national uh, health and well-being survey if I'm getting this wrong I'll uh, be corrected um, but it was also, again, as I understand it, this particular survey was first, and I'm not suggesting in any way I think it is wrong what they're doing, but it was first circulated back in March 2022 last year. Now, the reason I say that is because it was presented as the SNP doing this. Of course, March 2022, Aberdeen City Council was under a, a Tory Labour administration. So I think I'm making the point here uh, that these are things that should not be party political uh, or you know political in that sense at all. These are issues that should be carefully considered and should be about the health and well-being of young people. Tony Maguire from GB News. Hey, good afternoon, First Minister. Um, one of the primary coherent concerns given by the opposition to the Gender Recognition Reform Bill was women's safety in single-sex spaces. Um, could you clarify where women's groups consulted about the bill and in what ways were their views taken into consideration? I'm quite surprised you're asking me that question because, of course, you can go and look at the consultation responses. You can, and this is Parliament, not government, look at the 
uh, the evidence taken by the committee of the Scottish Parliament that, that scrutinised this. So the answer to your question, uh, I think, should be known uh, to you, but for the avoidance of doubt, the answer is yes. Um, the second point I would make is that, you know, the majority of you know, long-standing, well-established uh, women's organisations in Scotland are in support of this legislation. Um, and I'm talking about organisations like uh, Scottish Women's Aid, Zero Tolerance Scotland, Rape Crisis Scotland. In other words, organisations that day in and day out work with and support women who have been the victims of male violence and domestic abuse, so organisations that know precisely uh, what they are talking about when it comes to the violence of men against women. Um, and the last point I would make, which I was making in the BBC interview I did yesterday, the fear women have, and I, I'm talking here as a woman, obviously, about male violence is very, very real. Um, and the fear women have about predatory men accessing uh, women's spaces or finding ways to abuse women is very, very real. And there won't be a woman or very few women alive today who have not felt personally that fear at some point in their lives. Uh, the point, though, is that the Gender Recognition Reform Bill does not give a predatory man any more ability to do that which men regrettably on some occasions do do, than they have right now. Because if you take you know, a, a toilet, for example, a public toilet or a women's only, you don't have to show your birth certificate to enter these places. Uh, and what is a gender recognition certificate? It is the ability to have your acquired gender recorded on your birth certificate. That is effectively what a gender recognition certificate is. So a predatory man, and you know, it is predatory men, not trans women, uh, who abuse women. And I think it's really important, given that these fears are real, that we have a, um, an informed, respectful and, and civilised debate, but an informed debate that keeps the focus for attacks on women where it belongs, on men who abuse women and who can do that and have done that for my lifetime and way beyond, way before that, uh, without the need to change their gender or pretend to be a woman to do so. That concludes my list of questions unless I've inadvertently missed anybody. So happy to take feedback, as I said earlier on, on the format uh, we followed today. And uh, as I say, I intend to uh, probably not every week, given other uh, responsibilities and uh, commitments, but to do uh, these sessions periodically, unless you all decide you don't want to after today. But thank you all for now. So there we go. Hope you enjoyed that bonus Tuesday podcast from Scottish Independence Podcasts. We're not sure exactly what the frequency of these ad hoc press conferences is going to be at this stage, but I have to say, I think it's a smart move from the First Minister, and we look forward to seeing how this develops. Join us on Friday, as usual, for our Bits and Pieces January podcast. And as always, thanks for listening. Bye now.